Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today I'm joined by the incredible Becca Aids. Becca studied her undergraduate degree in clinical psychology at Exeter University, followed by her master's in eating disorders and clinical nutrition at University College London. Becca has four years of experience working with adults with anxiety disorders and depression in IAPT. She is now working as an assistant psychologist with both inpatients and outpatients within an eating disorder service based in London. Becca joins us today on Full of Beans to discuss her own journey with anorexia nervosa and how that has shaped her as a clinician today. Hello, Becca. Hi. You really sold me. <laughs> so how are you doing today? I'm, yeah, I'm good. Yeah? I feel it's like it's very monotonous, isn't it, at this point? <laughs> yeah, every day's the same really, isn't it? So for everybody listening, if you're listening to this back, we are currently in lockdown. I think we're probably... Number three, yeah. And how many weeks Number now has three. it been? Over a month. Yeah. At this point. But yeah. still a while to go, I think. So yeah. um so I thought that it would be really good today to kick things off by um giving everyone an overview of your struggles and your victories with anorexia. Um so if you're okay, did you want to start by letting us all know how that began for you? So I was a very anxious child mm-hmm. um, because I I had I guess I kind of just let's just use the word victim why not um, of abuse as a child not from my family or anything like that and then that made me very anxious growing mm-hmm. up um, and then I kind of hit my teens which is a fun time for everybody <laughs> and you kind of recognize what happened in childhood and alongside everything else yeah and I kind of just went through various different things um I mean I they said that I was depressed when I was like 13 but I really don't think I was I think Mm -hmm. I was just dealing with stuff um and it was just they slapped depression as a label and that was that um and then I was very much like there was a point where I didn't leave the house um and then when I was 17 it was the end of ASs mm-hmm. when they were a thing <laughs> they're not a thing anymore <laughs> and I just very very quickly and very suddenly went down a rabbit hole and I can't really sit and say that it was as simple as one day I just stopped eating food because I don't yeah. think it was as simple but that's kind of what my memory is of it okay it's a strange one because I, I was never an overweight child or anything mm-hmm. like that I was never around dieting in either family or friends. My friends were never dieters, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it just happened, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, and it's been a really interesting kind of journey to kind of think, for well, why did that suddenly happen? And I think it was just, I've used various different methods to kind of numb and cope with various different things okay. throughout my life. Um, and I think that my eating disorder was definitely that. Right. And it was, as awful as it sounds, it was the most effective one that I had found up mm-hmm. to that point, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I just descended very, very quickly mm-hmm. um, into this, like a rabbit hole is the best way I can right. describe it. I suppose because um, it's something that yeah. does completely take over, It, you know, anything that was going on before for you maybe was just kind of not forgotten about, but it mm-hmm. became like less of a like massive forefront of your life because the eating disorder is such a a big thing yeah and it was this ability to one 
numb anything else because when mm. you're starving you can't really think of anything else but it also meant that I didn't have to go anywhere like okay. I didn't I was unable to leave the house at one point mm-hmm. which was great suiting me down to the ground because I didn't really want to leave mm-hmm. and so I just became completely encompassed very very quickly I think it honestly was a space of about two months wow you know in those two months was it kind of it happened you recognised it was an issue, you got help or was it, it kind of lingered for a bit and it was a while before you started to think maybe there was an issue? That's interesting because I was very aware of what was happening. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't aware of the extent of it, if that makes sense. Okay. And so I went about my life, well, it wasn't really my life anymore, but, um, and just kind of carried on. Mm. I wasn't able to really do anything. Like I had like the summer job, but I wasn't able to do it because I was too unwell. And then I think it was basically, I can't remember whether it, if it was like me or my mum that were kind of like, off we go now. We need yeah. to do something about this. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of went from there. Okay. So when you, where did you go when you thought we need to talk to someone? I went to my GP. Okay. Um, and it's funny actually, because I recalled a memory because I remember you, we've spoken about this before, haven't we? Mm-hmm. About GP experiences. And I remember saying, mine was great. I remember I went to the GP before that time and right. it wasn't great. Um, so I, it was a man, elderly. I don't want to typecast, but I guess it, it wasn't the most ideal setup. Yeah. And I went in and was like, I, I think I've got a bit of an issue mm-hmm. around food. And he went, would you eat breakfast? And I was like, yeah that you eat lunch and I was like yeah that you eat dinner and I was like yeah and he was like oh you're fine then because people don't eat anything at all and I was like yes but you didn't actually ask what what I was eating um so then off I went and then my mum was in the waiting room and she was like is that it and I was like yeah I went again two weeks later and I saw this woman and she was incredible to be honest like everybody wants to go to her Mm. for any problem because she actually spends time talking and so then she did a full she did the full shebang um and then made an onward referral the Maudsley yeah in South London what do you think was so good about what she did for you was it that she took you seriously and kind of took like you know did all the checks she just was like okay and she took everything down so she kind of took kind of mental health in the past Mm -hmm. kind of ongoing mental health difficulties so I was self-harming and having an eating disorder at the same time so she took that into account she did like a full eating diary of what was going on Mm -hmm. and then she didn't do medical checks because she was a GP yeah GPs have what four minutes then which is another issue and then she kind of was like okay this is a problem Mm. these are the next steps that we're gonna do and so then I made she made a referral to the (laughs) and um it was 2014 time so it was before they did a big mental health review right and before services got funding mm-hmm. so now for children and adolescent services you have to be seen within four weeks mm-hmm. and then urgent is like a week and then critical is 24 hours so it was before that so this was in june time mm-hmm. and my assessment was in september wow so you had still had quite a wait yeah and i was an i was an urgent referral wow and that was God. the length of time so i can only imagine what other people had to deal with at that time yeah. And did you deteriorate in that period? Yeah, yeah, massively. Okay. I remember being like, they're going to make me recover. Mm. So I'm going to put myself in the worst possible position, which right. in my head was the best possible position because I don't want to do this kind mm. of thing. But the worst thing about it is I think what people misunderstand a lot is that there is a part of you that does want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I remember just kind of counting down the days until... I saw it as like giving permission to eat something, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I was so excited for that. And then that caused this like massive internal conflict because then I was Mm -hmm. like, you shouldn't even be there then if you're that excited to eat. Right, Um, okay. So yeah, I massively deteriorated. So do you think that it was, you know, in your mind, it was sort of, let's say anorexia is like an external 
force I don't know whether you'd like to think about that but like as a separate entity and that initially was saying like don't eat you can't eat but for you it sounds as though you were you know going off to the morsi and it was like another external force was going to say actually it's okay and you know that must have been quite a struggle to balance different people telling you what to do yes I think that for me, at least, people assumed that I just didn't like food, but it it was the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. I was completely obsessed and I kind of understand now there's reasons why that is, but I was just completely obsessed with Mm -hmm. food. But, you know, people listening, do you want to kind of explain the science behind why you were obsessed with food? Yes, it's it's a survival mechanism Mm -hmm. for your body when you're starving all your body focuses on is getting food and so that's all you can think about and that's what your body kind of drives you to do sure and so in anorexia and in bulimia as well you kind of substitute that and so for me I just used to feed the people around me right massively and I used to bake a lot but not eat anything and kind of just cook and just not eat it Mm -hmm. just to be around food yeah which is really strange for other people I think Mm -hmm. and it was a strange thing as well kind of for me looking back on it but yeah and going to the supermarket all the time and just walking up and down the aisles Mm. and then getting very stressed and having to leave so that was kind of that month's period between June and September and I remember getting to September and kind of getting to the point where I couldn't really stand up without kind of blacking out and then I think I did go into sixth form which is terrifying (laughs) I think it was like in my second week that my assessment was and I remember being in that sixth form and it being the longest week of my life because I just couldn't do anything but it's also terrifying how high functioning you can be as Mm -hmm. well even when you're in that state yeah and I think that's what made it difficult because I remember thinking there isn't a problem here because Mm -hmm. look at me I'm going to school and doing my A-levels Yeah. and I'm, I'm not having to eat. So what's the point? Mm-hmm. Why, why change anything? But then obviously when you look back on it, you think that's <laughs> not functioning. That's just no. getting from A to B. Yeah, you were doing and what you had to do. Yeah, but, pretty much. But really not. Yeah, there was, no, there was nothing functioning about it at mm-hmm. that point. Yeah, so that, the months between them were very, very difficult. Because mm-hmm. I was... Um, not a nice person to be around Mm. at that point either do you think that's possibly because you know what you were saying about you're functioning but you're not you're kind of using all your energy to just stay above water and yes be present then you know having to actually be a nice person as well as much as we probably Uh, don't think it it takes a lot of energy to be nice to people I just didn't have anything left I had nothing left and I just was in a space where I'm like I don't want anybody else near me at this point because I'm in my bubble and it's safe here yeah and so I just made everybody else's life a little bit difficult (laughs) to (laughs) say the least (laughs) but then I went and that kind of led to the the treatment that I got to be honest and so what was involved in in that treatment when you went So my assessment was very, very early in the morning. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) Um, And I think my assessment was about two and a half hours long. Wow. So you go in, you see a psychologist or a family therapist, Mm. whoever it is. You get assessed. um, So you get what I did anyway. It's different. I guess it's different for different people. But I went in with my mum and dad and I remember going this is a waste of time because I'm not going to tell you anything whilst, why would I? <laughs> Whereas my mum and dad are in the room and they clocked on very quickly. And then, so then it was just me and they asked about things like I didn't, I never binged and purged. That mm. wasn't, that was never something that was difficult for me. I did massively abuse laxatives Okay. and I was very secretive. And I told my mum, one of the things when you don't eat is that you get constipated, right? And so I was like, oh, it's just because of that. That's it. Um, And I very much took advantage of their naivety. And then, so they do that mental assessment. Mm. And then you go in to get your medical exam. And he was incredible in many ways. But I think the reason why I kind of liked 
him so much was that he spoke to you about something that wasn't your eating disorder mm. it was very much like he kind of just spoke to you like you're a human yeah which sometimes you didn't really feel like one mm. um did the medical exam did a heart ECG bloods the whole thing and then at the end I remember they basically got out two biscuits and like milk and I now know what this was but at the time <laughs> I was like this is weird and they were like oh can you just eat that and I remember being like I wasn't expecting this this is awful <laughs> why why <laughs> why now and I was I remember my response was can I just eat it later and they were like no you need to eat it now and I did and then they kind of they put me on a refeeding plan and I remember my mum being like this isn't much food actually what this is mm-hmm. not what I was expecting um, <laughs> then I got put into the day program to start with okay so in eating disorder treatment you kind of you can have inpatient day patient or community outpatient okay. team and so day patient is where you go in pretty much like a job like nine to five Mm -hmm. and there are different groups like psychology groups there's like occupational therapy groups which are more like practical things normally so like how to cook things like that obviously shared meal times and snacks but it's all supported and it's I think at the Maudsley it's a week or two weeks I went for two days and refused to go to the round. Oh dear. Um, yeah, because, and it's interesting because I was so fixated on my A-levels that I was like, this is, takes precedent over anything mm. else because I was just, I don't know, what's the word? High, like trying to be a high yeah. tuber. I suppose that's um, quite a common thing though in anorexia, isn't it? It's that perfectionism yeah. and during exams, all you're going to want to do is get the best you can and exactly. you, know, you can't yeah. let anything get in the way of that. Yeah i just was like this isn't i was like this isn't working for me and so i basically had to bargain with them and say that if i stayed here then if i stayed in the day program i just wouldn't engage with it at all but if i was outpatient i would right and so they were like fine (laughs) but the second things go south we Mm -hmm. have to switch so then i went and became outpatient so outpatient is where you go once a week you see a psychologist or a family therapist so I got family therapy and you follow a meal plan but you also get sessions with a dietitian like once a month or Mm -hmm. something just to check in and do you want to just explain a bit more about family therapy because I think there's often a you know a big stigma associated with family therapy that it you're going to family therapy so it's the family's fault and I I mean that's just not true at all is it so what sort of things did you discuss in family therapy I, it was just me and my mum that went to family therapy simply because my dad couldn't Mm -hmm. go. So me and my mum went every week together and basically in family therapy, what you do is you, it's kind of wanting to achieve the opposite of what that preconception is of it's your fault Mm -hmm. that she's like this. It's let's see what the family system is like and see what problems are off for everybody. So kind of like what we were saying earlier, you kind of make everybody's life really difficult. Mm-hmm. and it's giving the family members that space to air that mm. and it's helping the family take charge mm-hmm. so it was like the parents my parents responsibility for everything okay it was really hard on them in terms of like it was their job to make sure the meal plan was being followed to manage me at meal times mm-hmm. and they were taught how to do that and then I got the space to kind of share what I felt on my perspective whether that was feeling rejected or feeling guilty or feeling like a burden or whatever it was um but I also got a space in family therapy to have my own time mm. so that my mum would leave yeah which was really good because there were still things that I didn't it got better with time but there were still things that you just don't feel comfortable sharing with your sure. parent like your yeah. family there my mum was great she we laughed which I think a lot of people don't think you can do in therapy. Yeah. You're allowed to laugh. And she also got offered like carer support groups, which she went to and really benefited from. So it was just great mm. in that respect. And I suppose as well, obviously, like you say, it must be difficult for parents, you know, when they have to take that control basically over mm. what you're eating. But I guess that gives you the headspace to, you know, what you were saying before where you needed the permission to eat. If your mum and dad were saying, Yeah, you need to sit down and eat this, like we're giving it to you, there's no mm. option. Then I guess that yeah. takes away the 
arguments you have to have in your head with anorexia yeah. let's say because it's there you've got to do it you know anorexia is gonna to have to shut up for a sec because there's no option yeah and I really needed that I needed mm. that decision taken away from me I needed someone to take the wheels yeah that made it more difficult later down the line mm-hmm. because obviously you can't live like that forever of course but at that time where we, it was just like we need to get something done mm. it was great it's kind of what I needed it was great for the first two weeks and then it was difficult again mm. like everything when you're yeah. dealing with something and then it gets easier again and then it gets more difficult and then you have a little <laughs> bit of a lapse and then you think oh my gosh and then but I, it was quite interesting because I was 17 so I went from children to adult which um and that was a change of pace because they don't offer family therapy in the adult services did that feel like you know you'd gone I hope you don't mind me saying this but kind of mm-hmm. almost being treated like a child because your parents were providing you meals um giving you a lot of support and being there in your family therapy sessions so knowing exactly what was going on and then you went to adult services and it's kind of like okay Becca now it's over to you mm-hmm. yeah okay. that's literally what it was mm-hmm. it was this is your but now you're the magical age of 18 yeah and so the ball's in your court now so how did you manage and that? I didn't. Um, <laughs> to be honest, I I remember in the few weeks building up, I just completely went. It felt like I went back to square one, mm. and I was very unreasonable. So if you don't eat food, they get and give you supplement drinks, mm-hmm. which is gross. Um, <laughs> it's like an alternative, and so I just was on them for a while because I just was being. I just didn't really know what to do. Mm. and then I met the clinical psychologist who would be taking me over really an adult and she was lovely and it felt a little bit better and then I got the option of CBT or right. mantra mm-hmm. which I don't think many people know what mantra no. is I think do you want to just explain um, so mantra is the Maudsley basically the Maudsley method for treating anorexia <laughs> Um, and you get a big manual and it's got lots of different modules it basically tackles like the different aspects of that keep anorexia going so whether that's your identity whether that's the way that you're thinking whether that's like family and social relationships and you kind of focus on the ones that are most relevant to you my modules were identity and thinking Hmm. patterns I was very rigid in my thinking I was very all or nothing which is very common Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of like write letters to anorexia as a friend and to anorexia as a foe and I didn't like it as much as family therapy mm-hmm. looking back on that now I, which is strange because I think a lot of people don't like the idea of family therapy they just want one-to-one and it was also quite a difficult time because then I went to uni as well so I kind right. of it was a lot going on at that point but I kind of muddled through somehow um <laughs> And <laughs> that's kind of what I feel like with mantra. I just kind of muddled through it and then kind of was discharged eventually. Right. And so yeah. I'm quite interested to like hear like the progression of everything. So obviously you went on to Exeter to do clinical psychology. Was And you just said you went off to uni whilst you were still doing the mantra mm-hmm. stuff at the Maudsley. So was it in, an idea in the back of your head that you wanted to be a clinical psychologist in eating disorders whilst you were still suffering from an eating disorder? Or was it, I want to do clinical psychology, I don't know where I'll end up, but I'm going to go to Exeter anyway? Yes. Never in a million years did I think that I wanted to have anything to do with eating disorders mm-hmm. ever again. Because I was still in it. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. And so I just was like, I'm just going to go and see what happens. I was very much like, I want to work with anxiety and depression. That's what I want to do. That's Mm. it. And then obviously time changes things, doesn't it? And I went to uni and it was very much a very anxiety provoking time anyway. Of course. For any person. But I remember there very much being an air of this will either be fine or it's going to go horribly wrong. Mm. Um, and luckily it was it was mostly fine. Yeah. It didn't go horribly wrong, <laughs> um, which was good. <laughs> so did you carry on doing the mantra whilst you were at Exeter? In theory, yes. Right. In practice, probably not. Mm-hmm. I did, well, who am I kidding? I didn't really do it, to be honest. It was very much at the end. So at the end of treatment, you tend to get like a review, like a monthly review and then another review. So I'd 
finished the mantra and I was just in my review stage at that point and I have a very bad habit of just kind of then rejecting labels and thinking Mm -hmm. this isn't a part of me now which has come back to bite me a few times because I just kind of was like I don't want to be labeled as this anymore so I'm going to move on Mm -hmm. when really it's still going on I'm just denying it and denying it to everybody else Mm -hmm. it was a stage where things weren't things were fine to be honest they were as good as they could have been at the time yeah but they weren't as good as I was making them out to be. Mm. So what was it? Um, was it like as part of your degree that you realised you wanted to pursue a career in eating disorders? Or what was it that, you know, sparked that? Because I'm assuming that you went on to recover. And then, you know, what was it that made you think, yeah, this is really something that I want to get involved in? I feel like it's worth me saying that it wasn't that I went to uni and skipped off and things <laughs> were <laughs> things were great and then I recovered and then it was miraculous I thought um, that might not be the I case think, <laughs> things I think as we all know aren't as simple as that mm-hmm. it tends to answer your question of when I wanted to kind of go into eating disorders I think when you struggle with something you have a natural inclination towards that because yeah. you relate to it and you kind of want to figure out why mm-hmm. although I never had the inclination to figure out why interestingly enough and I just remember the things that people said to me and thinking that they weren't quite right. What kind of things? I remember people kind of, there were different, I had a therapist to start with and then I changed because I didn't like them very much. Um, (laughs) Just because they said things like, oh, you're probably thinking this and you're probably thinking this. And I'm like, don't tell me what I was thinking. Yeah. And so I kind of just wanted to delve into it. And when I did... I realised that one, eating disorders is way bigger than anorexia. Yeah. And it just is something that really interested me. Still didn't think that I wanted to work in it. And then the more I kind of progressed in my uni degree and kind of in my career and working world, the more I kept coming back to it. Mm. And so then I thought, just do a master's in it. Why not? Mm -hmm. It's only 13 grand. Like, um, (laughs) if you hate it, you hate it. But then at least you'll know. And then I just found, I just love it. Mm-hmm. which sounds really weird. No, people I don't think really so. Bizarre. I just, they're like, well, why? I feel like people either really reject it or they just kind of come back to it, hopefully in a healthy way. And I just was like, this is just going to have to be my what I do, mm. <laughs> to be honest. Um, and that could change again. It yeah. could completely change. I could then, I don't know, work in psychosis and think that, but mm. that's kind of what it is for now. And mm-hmm. I'm quite content in that. Mm-hmm. So you're now working as an assistant psychologist, which is incredible. Um, So what's involved? What do you do in the day? (laughs) It's a very difficult job to get. It's my first thing. I feel like anyone that tries to get this job knows knows the struggle. Um, (laughs) What do I do in a day? It's a good question. I think that sometimes at the end of the week, (laughs) um, (laughs) what I've done. So half of my job is like behind the scenes. Right. Admin-y. So I either kind of collect data to audit, I manage people waiting so they don't have to wait, hopefully as long. I kind of make sure that everything runs smoothly. Um, and then the clinical side of my role really varies. So I work on an inpatient ward. So that involves doing inpatient assessments. It involves doing one-to-one therapy with patients if they want it so in in, in our inpatient ward anyway they can refuse psychology work if they want to okay which is a good thing because I think if you force anyone into psychology it's just not going to work you can't drag someone through therapy I suppose as well at such a a low weight when people are in inpatient it must be quite difficult for people to engage in that psychology work because like you were saying earlier you've not got enough energy to be nice to people or you know Mm -hmm. do anything other than be a human in a room so you know then trying to fix your eating disorder through psychology work must be really difficult Mm. when there's just nothing yes definitely we tend to rather than offering a whole big package of therapy Mm. we tend to think about okay well maybe you don't want to work on your eating disorder which sounds to a lot of people really then counterproductive because what's the point then but then we can think about, well, how can we manage or how can we get you into position to maybe want to change in the future? Yeah. Or how can we change it so you are uh, you become more aware of your emotions? So we do DBT mm. work or we do compassion therapy. 
it's a real mixed bag depending mm. on the person which is why I really like inpatient in that sense because you have that ability to be more free as a clinician then and kind of delve into different things just to see if all like there's like exposure work and things like that mm. and then the other part is I then go into outpatients and outpatients is a lot more structured mm-hmm. because of the nice guidelines mm-hmm. in that if it's on the nice guidelines that's what you get offered okay so there's a lot less flexibility in outpatients yes. would you say right so in outpatients generally in adults if you have a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa you get CBT or you can get mantra or SSCM. Okay. So it's very much nice and, guideline. And what's SSCM for those that don't know? Like specialist supportive clinical management. It's very practical. Okay. It's very much like regular eating um, and things like that and trying to manage maybe other behaviours as well. So self-harm or alcohol mm-hmm. abuse. So they're the, literally the three things that you can get offered. You can also get family therapy on the side of that, which is good okay. in our service. Yeah. If you struggle with bulimia or binge eating, you get CBT, but it's in a group setting because that's okay. where the evidence is. Right. And then, so I am a part of a new pathway Ooh. of guided self-help for mm-hmm. people who struggle with bulimia and binge eating. Okay. Because that's also within the evidence. So that gives people an opportunity to work one-to-one rather than in a group. Right. Which a lot of people prefer, mm-hmm. to be honest. So from what you're saying, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of interested to know your opinion on this. But, you know, you said at the start you absolutely loved food. And, you know, you were using your eating disorder as kind of a coping mechanism for things that had happened previously in your life. So do you think you know within eating disorder treatment the focus should be on getting you to try and eat or the focus should be on kind of digging a bit deeper and working out what happened that's then you know you're now trying to cope Mm. through not eating I think if you are severely underweight the and it sounds really like I'm just now saying oh you just need to eat but I'm not saying that at all it's just you need to, to eat and to nourish your body in order to engage or get anywhere. Yeah. Very similar with bulimia. The first thing that you do in bulimia is regularly eat. Mm-hmm. Because there's, what a lot of people don't know about bulimia is there's really often periods of restriction that a lot of people don't know about. They just hear about the binging and purging and mm-hmm. then that's it. But there's so much more to it than that. I said so the first step in both of them and in binge eating is all regular eating. Yeah because you need to be able to order what's going on mm-hmm. in order to then focus on other things you can't delve further into where your problems came from when you're still starving and then binging and purging every day or yeah. whatever it might be um so I think that that is why there's such a heavy focus on eating to start mm-hmm. with which a lot of people don't like because it it does feel like people are undermining a problem mm. it does feel like when everyone says I'll oh, just eat something and you think oh great and think about <laughs> thank <you very> much. <laughs> um, but it's a really big part and the scariest part of any form of recovery in terms of them delving deeper into why I have mixed feelings about it depends on what you stand in psychology I guess mm. I'm not very much into psychodynamic mm-hmm. getting to the root cause yeah because I kind of think one you're never going to find the root cause no you're like you're never going to find the exact reason why and if you did, what what, what, what do you do achieve? with that information? Yeah. Like, what what do you do with that? And I've had many types of therapy throughout my life um, that tackled or tried to tackle different things. And I remember doing things that were like that. And I just sat there the whole time thinking, this is great, but like, what do I go away and do now? Mm, like, yeah. But then for other people, it, it's really nice to know that. But mm. I guess for me, the cause was kind of obvious, you yeah. know? If someone has like trauma and then sure. a whole different lead up to it, then you can kind of, I don't want to sweep everyone with the same brush, but you can kind of be like, it's got something to do with that. Um, <laughs> so I kind of knew that and that wasn't a box that I wanted to open. So I was like, how do I move on from this? So I think it depends on the person. Yeah. But I'm very much in a, a camp of psychology where it's like, how can we get you to function at the moment yeah. how can we get you to move forward and how can we keep you on a so, path that's positive do you think more establishing coping mechanisms and you know learning how to deal with things that's not starving yourself or binging yes. and things like that 
yeah and that can be then that kind of can be a whole host of different things right because it it can be that you struggle with emotions and so it's about maybe doing some emotion work and emotion mm-hmm. regulation so a lot of people when they binge it's because they're experiencing or self-harm or whatever it might be or alcohol or drugs it's because they experience this really intense emotion that they don't know what to do with and so they just need to do something mm-hmm. and then they go and and they can binge and then yeah. they feel better for a while or they self-harm or whatever it is so it could be that or it could be that you work on perfectionism or that you work on self-esteem or you work on anxiety like OCD or whatever it might be and that can all get incorporated into maybe not eating disorder specific therapy but at least you can then uncover a little bit more of what's going on and then you can go into different therapies if you want to in the future. I'm quite interested you know just before when you said you know giving people coping mechanisms for you know when they want to binge or self-harm to me, they sound like quite intense emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it must be quite like overwhelming to to want to do that. So mm-hmm. it must be really challenging to find something as significant and as big as that to replace it. Mm-hmm. Is that something that people yeah. often struggle with? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think that it's completely, I say this to people every single day, it is completely unreasonable to expect yourself to stop using that as a coping mechanism straight away. Some people can, and that's great, Mm. but a lot of our patients can't. And so it's about, I say this a lot about kind of relapse as well, or lapses, is that you can look at it in two ways. You can be really hard on yourself and you can think, why am I like this? Why am I doing this again? I'm so stupid. I'm so weak or whatever it might be. Or you can kind of flip it and you could go, it's really understandable why I want to do this because this is how I've learned to cope. And that's okay. Mm. because for whatever reason but it's fine it's what you've learned this is how you manage it it's also completely understandable it's a really quick fire way to help you to manage yeah, and cope definitely. and you can take it from a more compassionate stance and you can kind of forgive yourself in a way but that doesn't mean mm. that you can then carry on yeah if that makes sense mm-hmm. so we often tell people we tend to see it the most when people get discharged from inpatient they can binge Mm-hmm. just because they go from a controlled environment to a not uncontrolled and we kind of say like it's likely if mm-hmm. they struggled with binging in the past that they may go and do that but the most important thing is they get kind of get back on their regular eating and they don't yeah. then try and compensate in any way and they explore why mm-hmm. so what's something that's really powerful in any therapy and I'm going to say this till the cows come home and people get really <laughs> sick of me saying it monitoring so kind of thinking what's the build up to this yeah. And when you're able to spot something earlier on, like whether it's anger or sadness, it doesn't then get to the point where you want to binge or you yeah. want to self-harm. And that's really difficult. I say that like it's really easy, but it's not. But it's kind of a stepping stone mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of practice. But that's one way that people can do it. So in terms of monitoring, you know, what sort of things would you advise people to do? Is it recognising in your head like, oh, I feel a bit crap, you know, actually, you know, physically doing something about it? So normally monitoring is not doing anything about it, just botting it. Okay. So it's writing everything down. Okay. Absolutely everything and people hate it when they start. But it's normal in eating disorders in particular, it's around eating. So you write what you eat and then everything around that. But you can also write when you're feeling anxious or Mm -hmm. happy or low and you write what's happened. So it could just be that somebody says something that you didn't like and you thought that that made you think something. And then that made you want, like, feel a certain emotion, whether that was sadness, for example. And then that made you want to eat more or eat less. And then what what did that then make you think? Mm -hmm. And what monitoring does is that you kind of then realise that it's not this automatic process. Yeah. You kind of pick apart things that may have triggered it or what triggers you or certain emotions that are difficult for you to handle, patterns in your eating and things like that. Okay. So I always say to people that you can't deal with a problem where you don't know what the problem is. Right. And so we can sit there and we can go, well, not eating is my problem, but not eating is this massive umbrella and I didn't eat because it helped me manage certain difficulties and anxieties but for the next person they may not be eating because there's a centered around body image 
and things like that, like really heavily centered around that. And for somebody else, it could be that they're absolutely petrified of losing control over something. It's this really big umbrella thing, but the reasons behind it are so different. And that's Mm. why monitoring is so important, because then you can uncover what it is and what you're thinking. Yeah. And normally, normally, obviously, it doesn't always work out like this, (laughs) but people come back like a week or two later and they think, I've noticed something here. I've noticed a pattern. And that's the first step because then we can kind of go with that and we can build upon it so I mean from what you said there it sounds it sounds like there's you know a big weight on the patient in their recovery but obviously with you having your own experience I assume that you can give back a lot because you can empathize so how much do you think like the overall like treatment process how much is down to the person Put, like putting their input and how much is down to the clinician you know really forming a good relationship and knowing what's going on with their patient I think that you can't force someone to recover and I think that's kind of the number one thing you can't drag somebody through therapy if they don't want to do it well you can but they're not <laughs> going to change anything and it would just be difficult and awful for both parties so and you can feed somebody and you can section them and you can restrain them but that doesn't make them recovered if that makes sense yeah absolutely um, eating doesn't cure an eating disorder you know so that's kind of my number one yeah. thing is that unless you want to do it you can't mm-hmm. get very far saying that it is my responsibility and the responsibility of a psychologist and I can only say it from a psychology perspective but it's my job to empathize obviously it's my job to take on people's difficulties and help them to make it easier to manage which can be really difficult at times and it's my job to support them and to make it possible or Mm -hmm. to make it feel like it's possible to help them to do so you need to trust people you need to have a good relationship with somebody because I mean people can be put off recovery by having a bad like yeah bad therapist or a bad experience so it's very much weighted in that way but I guess that comes from a good relationship because you have to be able to call somebody out when they're not in like a rude way but kind of being like <laughs> this isn't actually that helpful or you're doing this and it's it's actually being really unhelpful for you yeah or I've noticed you do that because without being able to call somebody out on their unhelpful behaviors you're kind of skirting around the issue yeah you know definitely. and one of the most difficult parts of my job hands down is finding a balance between feeling like you have a good relationship with somebody but not overstepping that mark into being their friend yeah because it's not my job to be somebody's friend and that's really hard for me and it's really hard sometimes for patients to or clients to hear because it can kind of go go into that and once you go into the friend thing Mm -hmm. it's not going to (laughs) work um it kind of oversteps the mark Mm -hmm. i suppose that attachment and you'd speak to your friends about much different things to you know what you'd Mm. speak to your therapist about wouldn't you so yeah Yeah. definitely okay great so that is just super interesting and I could honestly ask you questions for hours and I'm sure I will do (laughs) because uh, as your job goes on but you know I this podcast aims to motivate and inspire others you know struggling with eating disorders to reduce the stigma and give people the courage you know to leave their eating disorder behind knowing that on the other side things are going to be okay so what do you think your top tip or your best advice for people looking seeking out recovery at the moment from an eating disorder would be I feel like I'm about to give you a really long-winded answer even though you just asked me for one top tip I think that it's really important for people to know that it's not an easy road which sounds Mm -hmm. really discouraging no I I think it's true and people need to know I feel like I get very irritated by this portrayal of any form of recovery, whether that's from an eating disorder, whether that's from an addiction or anything like that, that you go in and you everything's lovely and you eat an avocado and life is great. And you just it's just not like that. It's there are going to be times when things are great and you feel like it's the best thing. And there are going to be days when you think all I want to do is to just go back to this thing Mm -hmm. whatever it is whether you want to name your eating disorder or whether you want to see it as something external to yourself or whatever it is because it's easier and I think to me the hardest part of recovery was to not do it half in half out Mm. which I think a lot of people 
do. Yeah. I think this is a whole other podcast, to be honest, Hannah, but I think a lot of people <laughs> deal with an eating disorder by channeling it into something else, whether that yeah. is a sport, whatever, or you just kind of on the cusp of a healthy weight or just completely avoiding certain foods but eating enough to get by yeah and you can't do that you can't recover from eating disorder whilst trying to lose weight at the same time no or whatever it might be and so I think it's really important for people to know that and I think it's important for people to also think about life outside of it or beyond it as you Mm. were saying and that isn't just that you won't have to be in hospital anymore one of the most overwhelming things for me that I thought, oh my gosh, what have I been doing? Is I had energy to laugh, which sounds ridiculous. I know. I just, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been depriving myself of. And you think about kind of the two paths that you can take in life and you can think, well, I can carry on the route I'm going down and then end up in hospital, which at the time seems like this really big achievement, but really it's just, you just sit in a hospital ward and life goes on outside or you can have this life that you want but it's just going to be a lot harder to get there yeah not to sound cliche but it's massively worth it um (laughs) because the alternative is pretty bleak and then I think about kind of I don't know I think back to when I was recovering I guess you still recover every day don't you but back in the real midst of it and I remember being very overwhelmed overwhelmed because I just thought oh my gosh this is so final yeah. Like you can't recover and then go, oh, I'll just lose it again. Yeah. It's just like that final thing. And then I feel like once you kind of accept that and you think about what comes with that, we talk about this a lot, don't we? All these mm-hmm. extra things that come with recovery that no one yeah. ever talks about, which is going out for a meal. Mm-hmm. And sure, it may be quite difficult, but you're out for a meal. Yeah. I think for me personally, the things that, you know, I didn't expect you know, you expect, oh, when this all blows over and when I'm better, I'll be able to go out for a meal. But it's things like going for a walk and noticing birds tweeting or like, you know, noticing the flowers. I I never had Mm -hmm. the capacity in my brain to do that because I was always Mm -hmm. focused on, I'm walking right now and I'm burning calories, Mm -hmm. not everything else going on. And I think that's amazing when you start to notice because then you want it even more. Yeah, definitely. And you just... I kind of just want to hug a lot of people (laughs) and I wish I could tell myself that there is so much more to this world than food Mm -hmm. but more importantly there's so much more to you as a person than your eating disorder and even though your eating disorder feels like it's this amazing cool thing about yourself and I don't mean cool as in it's like a cool thing to have I mean it just makes you feel interesting in a way and there's so much more to you than that that's Mm -hmm. just being covered and how exciting it is to be on this journey and kind of figure out what you're going to be and how much more interesting that is than sitting on my fitness pal every day (laughs) you can discover this really random thing about yourself like you love to crochet and yeah I like to do puzzles <laughs> oh my god that's so boring we're so old but do you know what I mean yeah but it's just like oh my god wow and it's hard not to look back and then mourn time lost and all the rest of it and see it as time wasted and that's hard as well people don't tell you about that the kind of regret that you can have but then I just think think of all the things that you've learned and I guess that kind of is what keeps you going every single day because mm-hmm. I just kind of I'm very blunt with myself of going oh okay cool so you want to just stop eating great so where's that gonna where's that gonna end up then uh not where you actually want to go so let's just dig your heels in and just keep going yeah so yeah I guess is that a top I don't think that's a top tip I think in a roundabout (laughs) way it's a it's not necessarily a a top tip but it's a when you are in the depths of it it might feel like it's the only thing that you're ever going to be able to do or be good at but actually there is so much more to life than Mm -hmm. counting calories, weighing yourself, doing exercise, feeling like that's the core. It's actually, it's the little things in life, like giving somebody a hug and, you know, feeling that love rather than thinking, oh my God, get off me, I've got to go and do something. Literally, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I just think that, think of all the wonderful things that you can be in this life that is more than just this bubble that you're in which is a a safe bubble to be in and it's completely okay to see it as a safe bubble because that's literally what it is that's the point otherwise you wouldn't do it every single day if it didn't benefit you in some way 
but it's kind of I always tell myself like it's time to time to move on now mm-hmm. and talking to people good lord talk to people like I know that that sounds like I know that there will be people that don't have that privilege to have somebody to speak to and it's also unfair to rely on people to hold you accountable but it's also good that someone's like just kind yeah. of keeping a watch for like because mm-hmm. then it's so easy to kind of lose insight and see things whereas I have people that are like are you uh you, you're right or <laughs> do you just is there a reason why you've uh, done that or and that's really good because it yeah. kind of just snaps you out of it mm-hmm. and another top tip which I think we both very much share the view of is just if you're going to use social media which we all do mm-hmm. just follow people that Absolutely. spread joyous messages rather than the ones that make you feel really rubbish about yourself because yeah. that's just not gonna end well mm-hmm. especially if you're recovering in any from anything mm-hmm. I told well, you it would be a long-winded answer <laughs> <laughs> no it was yeah, lovely was and really inspiring so thank you so much for coming on today to share your story it's been so nice to listen to I've learned so much about you that I didn't know despite you being one of my closest <laughs> friends so thank you so much and you're very welcome thank yeah, you for having it's me. been really lovely to speak to you it's been lovely That conversation with Becca is one I feel truly privileged to have had and I think she really demonstrated how you can make good of a bad situation that has occurred in your life and how, you know, she has now made it her passion to help others with eating disorders after her own struggles. Next week, we'll be joined by Katie Barbaro, who is the author and illustrator of Fed Up, the book, which is a handwritten memoir of her journey with bulimia. Me knowing that I use my body as a scapegoat for what I'm feeling, it now can be an alert system. So if I get the message, I feel fat, then I know I need to look at something that's going on inside. You definitely won't want to miss next week's episode. So to ensure you are one of the first to listen to it, please do click subscribe. Please also comment, like, and share this podcast to help us reach those individuals who really need some support at the moment. Not only sufferers, but also to their loved ones, as it can be a very distressing time. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, and this podcast aims to motivate individuals along their path of recovery, as well as increasing awareness. For further support, please visit the BEAT website, or speak to your local GP. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. Bye!